Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. So are you ready to get ready? (laughs) (laughs) Great work. So are you ready to get started? Absolutely ready to get started. My name is Sydney. And I'm Jess. And we're your hosts, and this is Malpractice Podcast. And we're mad. Yeah. Let's start off mad. Let's start from the top. Yeah. We want to mention the overturning of the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade that happened last Friday out of fear from the justices, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's very lazy to release bad information on a Friday. Because nobody checks their email on Friday. Correct. Yeah. We're still wrapping our heads around this. Frankly, like the entire world is still wrapping Mm -hmm. their collective heads around this. Like other countries are like, what's going on? We've actually covered the history of access to abortion in a past episode. We've talked about access to abortion as health care. We both identify as women. We both support health care entirely. And so, therefore, we both support choice and autonomy over your own personage. Mm-hmm. Just know that we are committed to continuing the coverage of these topics. Know that we stand with choices of those wishing to access health care in this form. Um, we know there are difficult roads ahead for justice. And we know a lot of this work lies with elected officials who are in positions of power and probably need to be pushed by mm-hmm. all of us a little bit um, into action. Yeah. While anger can like fuel us, action really comes in like organizing and conversation. Yeah. Um, this isn't over. This is a country that is criminally lacking in a ton of areas around health, protecting children, protecting women, protecting historically underserved underrepresented and silenced communities. Yeah. And we just want to say, like, we're outraged. We are with you. We are you. Yeah. And we both are of the position that choice is an important freedom. It's tied into the foundation of everything we should cherish here, especially in America. If you're still not sure about how this decision will affect the general public, know that public health departments, including places like Harvard and Columbia, the World Health Organization, the New England Journal of Medicine, the UNFPA, just to name a few health organizations that have all spoken out to describe how harmful it will be to remove access to comprehensive reproductive health care. Each year, 47,000 women in the world die as the result of unsafe abortion procedures, and an estimated 5 million are hospitalized for the treatment of serious complications such as bleeding or infection. The statistics also say that in countries where abortion bans are passed, the number of procedures performed does not go down, but the number of safe procedures performed does. Yeah. We know that this decision will only exacerbate social inequality and disproportionately harm people of color and those who already face obstacles to getting the health care they need. This decision is a huge setback, but it's not going to break us or our resolve to do the right thing. And I really hope that moving forward, this will encourage people to work together to ensure that we can fix this. Like, be mad, and, like, that's fine to be mad. Find your friend, find your person where you can be like, what the heck? Yeah. But then you really need to get into, like, what is the action you're going to take from this? Right. What can I what can I physically do? What can I financially do, if anything? Even if it's, like, what can I conversationally do? How can I bridge gaps with people, like, in the information divide and the education divide here? There is something that you can do. So I just wanted to encourage people to, like, find that thing and make that, like, your next step. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And if this is your first time listening, you may not know this. Um, Jess and I both live in Texas, which is one of the states that has these trigger laws. They're, it's it's going to get bad in Texas, I think. Um, there are lots of resources here, though, I will say. And one of the ones that I became hyper-focused on over the weekend is called Buckle Bunnies. Yeah. So if you have money to donate toward organizations or time or resources or whatever you have and feel comfortable providing, now is a good time to do so. Yep. Yeah. I don't know why we're telling people who listen to this podcast, like, they don't know. (laughs) You know what to do, people. You know exactly what to do. Yeah. So Individuals Liberty is actually 
linked to our topic today. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to cover the history of plastic surgery. So that's like all the choices, right? Yeah. Cosmetic surgery has been a- around for a long time, like a long time. Yeah. As long as people have been wanting to alter their appearances um, from necessity or from desire, there have been cosmetic and pl- quote unquote plastic surgery. Right. So those two terms can like often be interchanged. So I wanted to explain the difference. Dictionary.com, shout out to y'all, describe the difference between cosmetic surgery and plastic surgery because if you've listened before, you know I don't know shit. And if you haven't, my name's Jess, I don't know shit, so I always like to look up (laughs) definitions. Sydney's qualified, I don't know anything. So uh, plastic surgery is concerned with the restoration, reconstruction, correction, or improvement in the shape, appearance, um, and appearance of body structures that are like defective, damaged, or misshapen by injury, disease, or just like growth and development. Mm-hmm. Cosmetic surgery is performed to enhance the appearance of a body part, especially like the face. This is like aesthetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery was kind of born out of the field of plastic surgery and it developed and became like right. safer and elegant and people got the chance to have like elective procedures rather than only medically ne- necessary ones. So that's the breakdown there. Right, exactly. Plastic surgery is more medically necessary. Cosmetic surgery is more, usually more elective. and. But you could have plastic surgery and it be necessary. It's just like a weird, you'll hear them both. So there you go. I guess. Yeah. And in certain parts, we use them kind of interchangeably, but yeah, yeah. that's the distinction. Right. So starting actually with the Egyptians, yeah. if you've never listened before, if you go back to one of our first episodes, like the Egyptians are where it's at for medicine and history. And they're cool as fuck. They always seem to know what's going on. They know what's up. So the discipline derives from the Greek word plastikos, which means to mold or give form. So maybe the Greeks also had conversations about that because the Greek name and maybe they were doing stuff. But the oldest known event was ancient Egyptians. We love them in historical medical events. So yeah, there we go. I did read some places where the Greeks did a really good job of exploring the human body they had really extensive texts on it but then when we got to like romans the roman religion said don't explore the human body so they did like no dissections Mm. so greeks yes romans no egyptians absolutely Absolutely. 100%. They were like, let's do some crazy shit. We love it. (laughs) The ancient Egyptian medical text Edwin Smith Papyrus mentioned the procedure. Um, This is classified as, by most, as the earliest trauma surgery textbook. Mm -hmm. I'm mad about it because I read it was named after an American Egyptologist who actually purchased the book in 1862. Um. That's trash. So I feel like we've talked about, about this that. before. I was like, did he plunder that? If you bought he, it, is it still plundering? A, you can't just buy a book and be like, name this after me. Yeah, that's bullshit. Otherwise, we'd all be going to the Church of Jess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is named after me this now. Is Boom. Me now. I hate people, but um, anyway, I hate people is like not what you should say on a podcast. But probably not. I love you who are listening. Okay, fair enough. But this guy... Trash. And Edwin Smith? (laughs) Fuck out of here. Immediately. Fair. Anyway, um, the scroll details treatments of wounds and bone fractures while also suggesting fixing nasal... Nope. Nasal. Not nasal. (laughs) So the scroll is like fixing nasal injuries, manipulating the nose into the desired position... It's like using a wooden splint, lint, swabs, and a linen plug to hold it in place. Yeah. That is the vibe there. Also, I'm just up front. I want to say this. I did have a nose job of my very own. And I can tell you, it feels like that's basically what they still do right now. When did you have a nose job? 2013. Oh, I remember. And after it happened, I pulled papers out of my nose. Like, they had... Stuffed papers up there to keep the shape of the nostrils. Sydney was like, um, yeah. If you know anything about soccer, like you know the craziest people on the team are the goalies. So anyway, Sydney was our goalie. <laughs> Broke my nose several times. Several times. It was gross. I had a giant lump. So I made the individual decision. Yes. Shout out to Sydney. <laughs> shout out to ancient Egyptians. Yeah, um, we're on the same playing field. <laughs> so the ancient Egyptians also had prosthetics, like in. Oh my God, can you hear the thunder? Is that thunder in the background? It is thundering. It is storming here. Love that, that was for me. Very loud. Correct. My goodness. 
Yeah. So, welcome to the rainforest. Um, in <laughs> 2000, they discovered an ancient mummy, which I say, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Do not dig around mummies and ancient buried shit and then come in and bring any of that energy around me. No, you will get cursed. That's just facts. Yeah, 100%. So they found this ancient mummy. They unwrapped it, which is like, why are you doing mm-hmm. that? Um, and it had a prosthetic toe that they hypothesized it would help with walking. They actually, like, quote-unquote, tested replicas of the prosthetic toe on, like, volunteers. Well, you'd have to be missing a toe for it to help, right? I think so, yeah. (laughs) I just wouldn't be fucking around. just found a sample of people who were missing that particular toe? That toe. Okay. In the 4th century, so, sorry about that. (laughs) Whiplash back to the 4th century. So they found this mummy in 2000. Now, Bebop, back to the 4th century with me. Chinese doctors are said to have completed the first successful cleft lip repair. And cleft lip is like that split in a lip, right? That people are, like, children are born with. Yeah. So that's cool. Fourth century. That's, like, really advanced, I feel like. Totally. I mean, shit, I feel like anything's advanced even now. I'm like, wow, that's fucking crazy. (laughs) Right. Toes and everything. And then the ancient Romans were apparently really excited about plastic surgery. Like, their version was pretty simple. They would repair damaged ears and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. from fighting, I'm assuming. And, like, chopping each other. Sure, yeah. Um, There were... T- sure, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> chop, chop. chop. Snip, chop. There were texts in a medical textbook that indicated there were also, like, big fans of rhinoplasty and, like, scar removal in, like, ancient Rome. Yeah. But... It's, like, less talked about. And I will say, number one, the idea of doing rhinoplasty in the 4th century terrifies me. They, I don't understand how they literally did anything but walk from point A to point B in these times. Survival was, like, the minimum. Maximum. The minimum you could do was just. (laughs) Maximum. I I cannot do shit else. I'm in the middle of just trying to survive past, like, the age of 30. It's crazy to me because, you know, I watch Naked and Scared. Naked and Afraid. Known by some. (laughs) And, um. Every single time, I'm like, I would have died. (laughs) Every time I watch that show, I get so anxious about the fact that I would immediately walk out there naked and get sunburned everywhere. Immediately. I'm the palest bitch alive. If I walked off that boat where they dropped them off on the island, I would immediately be like, I'm out. I'm sunburned right now from this boat ride. Mm -hmm. I like to think I would survive. I don't think I would. No. I wouldn't survive anyway. <laughs> like that's just no. If they drop, if you're dropping me off somewhere, it's already risky. R.I.P. If I'm naked and scared, <laughs> I don't think so. If I'm at a secondary location, it's over. Uh no, I can't do that. Okay, so you mentioned that the mm-hmm. Romans were big fans of rhinoplasty. This is one of my favorite parts. When we were doing the research for this topic, I got so excited about this. 6th century BC, Indian physicians were carrying out procedures that can be linked to modern cosmetic rhinoplasty. Uh, nose reshaping is is rhinoplasty. So rhino means nose. Plasticos, Jess said, means to shape or mold. In a document that they named the Sisruta Samhita, the Indian physician named Sisruta. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that, that that was not actually probably his name. It's a it's like a moniker that means revered. But they don't know his name because everybody calls him Sushruta, which means mm. revered one. So this physician outlined a technique that was very, very advanced for skin grafts, especially at the time. This guy's method was essentially... It led people to classify him as the father of plastic surgery, and I think he absolutely deserves that title. So India is really where I feel like plastic surgery got his start because they were performing these really advanced methods as early as 800 B.C. There was this guy named Justin Youssef who was a trainee surgeon at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital who researched the topic of history and plastic surgery, and he wrote, quote, in ancient India, there was a practice of having one's nose removed as a punishment punishment for adulterous acts or other acts that were against the law at the time. And so essentially, if you were caught stealing or participating in adultery, they would just straight up chop your nose off, like flat face, no nose. 
And so it became a sign of public shame. If you walked around with an absent nose, people knew that you had done something wrong, like you had committed a crime. They scarlet lettered you, but they did it so that you could never change your shirt. Right. You are scarlet lettered forever. You can't just unpin the letter and move about your life. You You have no nose. No nose. And everybody's like, oh, you have no nose. You did something wrong. Really bad, too. (laughs) Like you didn't just... You are a terrible person. A hundred percent Scarlet Letter. I'm so glad you said that. That was good. Sushruta was one of the first doctors to understand the idea of having some physical abnormality that may cause unnecessary psychological damage. Like he has writings about this, Hmm. which if you're writing about mental health in the sixth century, you're a hero in my book. If you're a straight man writing about it now, so you're advanced. an anomaly, so. Correct. And this <laughs> man was way ahead of his time, for sure. Yeah. So this technique involved constructing new noses. Remember, their their noses chopped off, like, with a saber. It's gone. How, again, how would you survive the nose chopping? I would die. Who does the nose chopping and how is what I want to know, and I could not find this. Because what if they hit another part of your face when they're doing the chop? Oh, I'm sure they don't care at all. They don't care at all. They they think you're a criminal. I wonder if you laid your face oh, like uh-uh. this on the side. And they, like, guillotined, like guillotined it off. but for your nose. No, yeah. I can't be a part of that. that. I can't. I can't. How would you be... I would never... If it was up to me mm-hmm. and my experience as getting my nose chopped off... This man would never have accomplished anything because I would not survive a nose chopping. Same. Like, immediately I would not. I don't even think of myself as a particularly fragile person. And if someone told me they were going to chop my nose off, I'd be like, I'm fleeing the country. I'm dead or I'm fleeing the country. What do you do when you stub your toe? Curse loudly. Correct. (laughs) I cry sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's no way I would survive a nose chopping if my stubbing my toe is like the end. Like, have you ever gotten a paper cut or like pulled one of your cuticles? And I do this really dramatic shit where I'm like, I remember a time when my finger didn't hurt, but I can't put myself in that now because it hurts so bad. Oh, yeah. That's like a hangnail. Now someone is chopping your nose off. No, sir. No. So this man specifically used a hinged flap that was cut from the forehead. So the way that they did this is they would take a leaf and lay it over your nose. And they would outline the shape of the leaf that your nose, like, should be. And then he would flip the leaf up onto your forehead, cut a flap out of the skin of your forehead, leave a hinge on it, and then peel that skin down onto your nose to basically craft a new nose. And that technique is still being used. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, <laughs> wait. Uh-huh. Are you out while this is happening or are you awake? Um. Okay, good question. They did not technically have right. great anesthetics then. Right. These are my concerns. So I am troubled. Yeah. But then my thought is, wouldn't you just have an upside down nose scar on your forehead and that would be your new scarlet letter? Yes, but then they craft the skin, the skin back together. You cannot tell me. So they would suture the skin together. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not out with an OR and cleansing and bleach or whatever they use to like clean shit. No. No, this is way back in the day. So This procedure is still used today. It's called a paramedian forehead flap rhinoplasty, and it's still sometimes used in modern plastic surgery cases where someone has had extensive enough nose damage to warrant this. I think they said it had to be greater than like a 10 centimeter deficit in your nose. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm using the wrong unit. Maybe it's millimeters. That seems whatever. If you have a big hole in your nose, they could still use this today because they've they have made such extensive leaps and bounds in fixing the forehead scar problem that now it's, like, unnoticeable. Mm -hmm. It's also super beneficial because the skin that you're using matches the color and texture of your actual nose better than anything else possibly could, which is great because the goal for most people having this type of extensive reconstruction is to look, like, quote-unquote normal after And it already has a built-in blood supply, so your body is very unlikely to reject the skin graft. Isn't that so interesting? I'm still thinking about how you're not out with this happening. 
Yeah, we didn't talk about that. And honestly, we should do a separate episode on anesthesia because I feel like we talked about the difference between plastic and cosmetic surgery. One of the differences is also modern anesthetics. Yeah. When you could not feel experience horrendous pain while this was happening to you. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people probably started electing for. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. So I want to talk about how a little bit about how modern rhinoplasty actually works since it's actually the most popular plastic surgery around today. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of a nose job may be to reshape your schnoz to change its appearance to help with breathing or potentially both. The upper portion of your nose is made up of bones, specifically called the nasal bone, and the lower portion is made of cartilage. So if you kind of run your fingers down either side of your nose right now, you can actually feel where the bone ends and the cartilage starts about halfway down the bridge of your nose. Mm-hmm. So a rhinoplasty... Would they cut off the bone? You're back on the chopping. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I'm back on. I never left. <laughs> I don't think they were super picky about it. Can't make a U-turn if you never leave where you came from. <laughs> no, same. I'll never forget about the idea of someone chopping someone's nose off because it's so... Wild. And to survive. out there. No. Like, I kind of get, like, a finger or a toe you chopped off, but, like, a nose is pretty creative. I hate it. So a modern rhinoplasty may involve changing the bone, cartilage skin, or possibly all three. Mm. During the modern surgery, you'll get a local anesthetic plus sedation or a general anesthetic depending on how invasive the surgery is. The surgeon will make a small incision either inside of your nostrils. Sorry, if it sounds weird, it's because I'm like sticking my fingers up my nose while I say inside of your nostrils. I didn't sound any different. I didn't even know you okay. that you said it. <laughs> or at the base of your nose between your nostrils, this area is called the columella right here between your two nostrils. Mm-hmm. And so if you want a smaller or a different shaped nose, the surgeon will then shave down or remove some of either the bone or cartilage there. Some procedures can require a cartilage graft. Like if you want a different shape, they can build up the cartilage in certain areas to help like get rid of a bump, which is often taken from the septum, which is the cartilage divider on the inside of your nose. Mm-hmm. Um, but in rare cases, they can also take cartilage from your upper ear or between your ribs. You have this intercostal cartilage between your ribs they can take from. So these surgeons are essentially like artists. They do their artistry inside your face. They close you up, and that's about it. Uh, recovery takes from seven days to about six weeks for bones to fully heal if they have to do bone reconstruction, and then, boom, you have a new nose. I'm so uncomfortable, <laughs> but it's really interesting. Also, I'm so sorry about the thunder. That is definitely rolling through. Honestly, it's like an ASMR episode, and we should have had it last week for our spooky Haunted Island episode. That's a good point. Our mistakes. Um, If you're not creeped out like Jess, you can actually go see these procedures online. Like, you can look them up on YouTube. I, I watched one because I was interested. Ew! And the surgeon who did my nose job actually asked if he could take pictures for a medical textbook. Did you say yes? Yeah. You're lying. So somewhere in some textbook, my face is just splayed open. <laughs> you could go look it up. Yeah. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfy. He showed them to me afterward. They were pretty gross. So thank you for your service, <laughs> I think, to medical knowledge. <laughs> so... Ah. Um, th- there's this English guy, Joseph Constantine Carpew. Sure. He spent like 20 years in India studying Sushruta's plastic surgery method. So he came, he took what he'd learned back to the Western world and he performed what is considered the first major plastic surgery in British history on a military officer who had lost his nose from mercury poisoning. That sucks. <laughs> um, in 1814. Yeah. They were treating people medically with mercury which makes no sense yeah it does make sense that if you took a lot of mercury you would suffer from mercury poisoning like this guy poor guy but he got a new nose true back to the 1400s this is a wild timeline for for everyone today yeah we're kind of (laughs) zigzagging we're zigzagging but just hold on antonio Braca was pioneering his own version of known Nope, of nose reconstruction. I'm really struggling today. Love that for me. You're fine. He made a model of a nose from leather or like parchment, probably a combo, and cut that out of arm skin. So then he would leave it very similar to like 
well, forehead situation, mm-hmm. he would leave it partially attached to the arm and to the, to the nose. So he would do like this. Yeah. And you'd be like vampiring it, cloaking it up the way yeah. you're supposed to cough. Yeah. Yeah. Like oh, that. into your elbow. Yeah. Yeah. Then they would make you, make you wait. It's not funny. They would make you wait <laughs> like that for like a week or two. With your situation like this covered yeah. in it like a cage like a, to stop you from yeah, moving. Yeah, like a construction that kept you from moving your arm. Yes, your head and your arm in a cage. Yeah. And this was like the Middle Ages. Like I always knew the Middle Ages were not for me. <laughs> the time is not for me, but like I always knew Middle Ages was definitely not it. But this like confirms 100% that this is not a good time to be around. No. Also during this period, like the Middle Ages... Pope Innocent III declared surgery in any form to be expressly prohibited by Catholic Church law mm. because those popes, always on the forefront of scientific breakthroughs, they love science, the popes. Please don't encourage me, Cindy. <laughs> okay. I will create a situation where you have a lot of editing to do. I, I just don't even understand it. Well, and then the pope had so much control and, je- like, that, I can't really... Mm-hmm. I will... I don't disagree with you. I almost said the Pope. Oh, shit. I fucking said it. (laughs) You said it anyway. I really was trying to. I mean, listen, the Pope is always wildin'. They're always saying dumb stuff about science. And that's fact. Yeah. No one can convince me otherwise. Nobody. Right. No one's ever trying to convince me otherwise, but you couldn't if you did try. Okay, sorry. No, we're fine. Back to the popes. Uh, Around the same time in 15th century, there was a very cool illustrated Islamic medical text published by the surgeon in the Ottoman Empire named Serafeddin Subunkoglu. I know I butchered that, but I did actually Google how to say it. I practiced it. I butchered it anyway. It's fine. You can feel free to at me. You did not make eye contact with me, so I can verify that she's doing a good job of attempting, because usually, if people don't know, they look at the other person, but she knew I wouldn't know. You got me? (laughs) I wouldn't know. I cannot. You did a great job, in my opinion. Thank you. It's a very long name with a lot of symbols in it that I have never seen before. Like a little mini U over the G. What does that sound make? I don't know, but I did try. Yeah. So he covered 191 different surgical topics, over 412 handwritten pages, and there are three versions of this text that are actually still around. He handwrote all of them and um, illustrated all of them by hand, which is amazing because I could never. And they're incredibly advanced for the time. He talks about removing breast cancers and understanding that you had to sterilize instruments before surgery, which is way ahead of Western medicine in that regard. Yeah, but Western doctors were basically like, oh, there's some dirt in my hands. Like, that's probably cool. Get a little more. It's for flavor. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, dirt on my hands. I'm ready to perform a surgery. Uh, ready to roll. No, no, no. Um, They didn't start sterilizing instruments in Western surgery until around 1680, which feels very late. Really late. <laughs> mm-hmm. This French scientist basically invented like a pressure cooker um, to like sterilize instruments, but back to plastic surgery. Um, in nineteen, no, in 1597, <laughs> remember that episode where you were, like, flipping them around a lot? I can't stop doing it. I always do it. Um, anyway, so this guy, Gaspar, at the University of, is that Bologna? No. Bologna? <laughs> That's not right. Bologna? Bologna. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, that is how you spell bologna, right? Is it? I think so. <laughs> I don't know. There's an Oscar Mayer song where it says... B-O-L-O-G-N-A. That's the only reason I know how to spell baloney. There's an Oscar Mayer song. <laughs> if that's how you spell baloney, that's offensive yeah, to I'm the not English fucking with you. Pe- words. I don't like it. I think it's Italian, but go off. In the 1600s in Germany, you could actually, like, ask a barber, which were, like, interchangeable with a surgeon at the time, for anything from, like, a cut and a shave to, like, a skin graft. Ugh. From, like, an animal. Like, you could literally go into a barber's shop, uh-huh. quote-unquote. They were, like, the surgeon. That's terrifying. Yeah. Feels like you might need a little more training to do one thing than the other. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like, nah. Then, in 1818, the German doctor Carl Ferdinand von Graf. Oh, okay, girl. <laughs> um, He published the rhinoplastic 
being the first to coin the term plastic surgery because doctors were molding body tissue. So he was the one mm-hmm. giving credit with like that word. I'm sure he's not the first person to say it. Let's let's be honest, uh, Carl. In 18... 18- no, there's like 337 people that they call the father of plastic surgery. So like pick one. Whichever one you like the origin story of the most, that's him. I think we go the the furthest back. Sounds good. Yeah. In 1838, Edward Cease introduced plastic surgery as a medical term in his textbook about the topic. That doesn't feel like he did much, but like, okay, you got a sentence in a podcast. Good job. Um, in 1895, cool guy. Um, in 1895, there was the first breast augmentation with tissue transplanted from the back. I can actually tell you why he took it from the back. This guy, Vincent Searney, mm-hmm. he took adipose tissue from a patient's own body after he had taken a breast cancer out of a woman's Like a tumor? Breast. Yes. Okay. It was a tumor. He took it out. He used adipose tissue to build up the breast so that it looked symmetrical to the other side. Gotcha. It was the first breast augmentation, but it was from her own body, which is much better than what people started doing later. And uh, off, it's crazy that he did it so early because often these surgeries would end in, like, disaster for the pa- totally. patients. And it wasn't really until the, the mid-1990s, you know, the year of our birth, that breast augmentations, like, started to be actually considered safe. Mm-hmm. Early on, they used everything from, like, paraffin. What is that word? Paraffin? Okay. I'm yelling at myself. I'm not yelling at you or y'all. It's okay. <laughs> um, paraffin. I don't know why I think it's paraffin. Wax that caused like huge issues in the body. Ivory glass sponges that generally ended up having to be removed because, you know, mm-hmm. we also learned in Grey's Anatomy that you cannot leave things in a human body generally, like a towel and things like that. Also, can you imagine having a glass booby? Can you imagine? Period. Period. That's the entirety of this episode. Apparently the paraffin wax would melt if they went out into sunlight. Well, that's great because everyone here had air conditioning. You didn't think of that as maybe being an issue? I am appalled and disgusted. They're like, throw some wax in there. Who cares? One of the other methods was like silicone injections, which caused so many issues that they're banned by Congress in 2004. That's gross. And eventually silicone and saline-filled silicone sacks were also, like, limited. Early versions of these implants developed in the 1960s had patients complaining of an audible sloshing sound. I'm so sorry. (laughs) What? Um, I will never. um, And sometimes they, like, leaked into patients' bodies. Cool. I love that. Uh Uh-huh. There was a recall on implants produced by the manufacturer Allergan. Yeah. As recently as 2019... And one study, I'm mad, and one study conducted, that's how you can tell, I'm about to, just everything's going to be an upward inflection at the end of the sentence. That's how you know. (laughs) Fine. And a study conducted at MD Anderson concluded that breast implants are associated with higher rates of autoimmune disease. Yeah. If you read, so I kept searching, like, when did breast implants become, like, quote unquote safe? And the answer is nobody really knows. That's awesome. Wonderful. Um, The FDA says they're still conducting research and things like that about it. But in 2019, according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, plural, there were 287,085 breast augmentations performed in the U.S. So breast augmentation is still in the top five most popular cosmetic surgery procedures. And while the data is definitely still being collected and monitored, if you are considering a procedure like this, it's important to know all the facts and potential risks involved. Yeah. So let me get more comfortable. I'm going to cross my feet. So that's the trajectory of one procedure into modern times. But we're going to take a quick rewind to highlight how plastic surgery became more normalized in society because radical changes in elective procedures that were cosmetic didn't really happen until after World War One. So during that war, technological advances in weaponry that produced shrapnel, uh, chemical bombs, mustard gas that caused severe skin burns meant lots more people had wounds that disfigured or damaged people's faces specifically. And it was nothing like the world or surgeons had ever seen before. I got you. So while soldiers were coming back from the front lines with facial injuries that often caused serious psychological trauma, Dr. Harold... Uh, Jilly's Giles. 
I know you're Jillies. not asking me. <laughs> Dr. Harold, I'm going to say Jillies. I listened to a podcast where they said his name. Jillies is more fun than Giles. It's more fun. Okay. I think it's Jillies. Dr. Harold Jillies was pioneering some reconstructive surgical techniques. He convinced the English Army's chief surgeon to establish a facial injury ward inside the Cambridge Military Hospital. And then after the Battle of the Somme, where hospitals were flooded with patients who had suffered facial injuries... Jillies opened up a thousand new beds at Queen's Hospital specifically for facial reconstruction. So soldiers, sailors, airmen started coming in with severe burns and injuries that actually they eventually removed all the mirrors from this ward to prevent further psychological damage. And I don't know why that fact is so touching to me, but the idea that they did that to like stop people from being traumatized by their own faces is really touching, I think. Yeah. Jilly's assembled a multidisciplinary team of surgeons, nurses, and even artists and sculptors who created likenesses of what the wounded men had looked like before sustaining their injuries. Now, this is really cool. Yeah. So they also did progressions. When the men would come in, they would do an initial progression, and then after multiple surgeries, after each, like, checkpoint... The, sur- the surgeons and artists together would do new ones so that the patients could kind of see how their faces had changed over time, which I think is really neat. And they even, uh, for patients who, like, part of their face was so badly um, damaged that it was impossible to reconstruct, the artists would create masks for them so that they could kind of go on living life normally, which is is really cool, too. Mm-hmm. After the war ended in 1918, the hospital continued operating this way and eventually performed more than 11,000 operations on over 5,000 men until 1925. This surgeon was knighted in 1930 and actually went on to help pioneer gender affirmation surgery. So we love him. We love him. Yeah. Yeah. He's a Bob. Check one. One point for, for you and your team. 100%. In the same vein, um, Dr. Jock. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Joseph, Jock Joseph, Jingleheimer Schmidt. Um, <laughs> that was good. Sometimes he's called the father of cosmetic surgery, but we know everybody is. Performed regular surgeries on Jewish patients. He was himself Jewish. During a time when anti-Semitism was like on the rise in Europe, people often came to him wanting tied markers of their ethnic heritage to help them avoid hostility. And this was part of the movement that helped plastic surgery move towards becoming something you could do for like aesthetics alone, even though they were doing it essentially for protection for themselves. Yeah. I listened to a really good episode of Stuff You Should Know. I love that podcast. Me too. I They're the best. Um about rhinoplasty specifically to prep for this episode. And they talk about the fact that it was really common if you were a young woman who was Jewish, it was common for your parents to gift you a nose job for like your 18th birthday. Yeah. Because people were so afraid of their daughters basically going out into the world looking Jewish and being perceived as Jewish that they would That's so, gift them a nose job, which is... That is something for a whole other podcast. Horrifying. During and after um, World War II, Gilly's cousin, Archie McIndoe, yeah, also from New Zealand, um, would go on to first assist his cousin and then refine and advance the techniques used to reconstruct facial differences that resulted from war. So together, they perfected a technique called waltzing in which a skin flap um, would be taken from the upper thigh leaving it attached by a small flap of skin and it would be folded into a tube then they would make an incision on the person in the person's arm tuck the freeage of the skin flap into the arm and fix it to the person's leg let it heal into position sever the part still attached to the thigh and then move it onto the person's face to put it in place I know that's difficult to picture because when reading it, I was trying to picture it and... Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it allowed them to repair larger areas affected by injuries like burns. So that was really common in World War II, especially like pilots and like fighter pilots. So this was basically like taking a skin flap, yeah, hooking it to your body so that it would be preserved. And then as soon as it's ready, like using it to cover or like reconstruct a piece of your face. Exactly. It's it's almost exactly like what you were describing earlier where they would like wire it into place. It would be connected to both your thigh and your arm and then just mm-hmm. your arm and then your arm and your face and then just your face. So that's the like waltzing. Oh, you're moving it around. Yeah. You're moving it around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, they actually called the soldiers treated by this doctor the guinea pig club because all of his procedures were so new and revolutionary that they were like the guinea pigs of cosmetic surgery. Yeah. He also... I mean, if you're going to be a pig, be a guinea pig. Be a guinea pig because they're cute and fluffy. Super cute. And they eat them in Peru. Fun fact. Yikes. Um... (laughs) Yikes. He got so concerned. Why did they do that? I don't know. I'm like, how much meat could a guinea pig possibly provide for you? When what do they do that? Like restaurants? Mm-hmm. You're lying. No, you can go there right now and eat a guinea pig. Why? I don't know. They just like it. Who looked at it and thought, I want to eat that? I've never seen a rodent of any sort and been like, gimme some of that meat. Peru? We got questions, Peru. Guinea pigs? Why did you tell me this? I'll never be, I will never recover from this. You look so traumatized. I already don't eat meat. Well, you certainly don't eat guinea pigs. Certainly not. I don't know if I could do that. That feels like it. I feel the same way about this as I did about when I went to Australia and they were like, do you want some kangaroo? And I was like, I'm a vegetarian No, I'm not eating kangaroo either. (laughs) Immediately. I'm not eating a kangaroo. They have a little pouch. They they eat that. I can't eat a kangaroo. That's not for me. No. Okay, back to the guinea pig club. So this is made up not of of actual guinea pigs, but of uh, soldiers coming back from war who are, you know, have devastating facial injuries. Yikes. (laughs) He also encouraged them to reintegrate into society, and he apparently did this by leaving full kegs of beer readily accessible at the end of each unit. So it essentially became one big party among a group of people who had been severely wounded and often had a really difficult time with post-war life. He would also apparently take groups of men out to pubs and restaurants, which had all agreed beforehand to remove their mirrors prior to the groups coming in, because apparently seeing their their faces was a big problem for people going through these facial reconstructions. Of course. Of course. And the criteria for being in the guinea pig club was that you had at least two facial reconstruction surgeries. Jesus. Um, So he would take these people out to pubs and restaurants. And so... Everyone in this small town where they were located called East Grinstead was apparently so, so like, locally, they were so friendly and hospitable that it became known as the town that never stared because you could go to all these places and expect, like, friendly service and no one would stare at these men because they got used to it. That's cool. Yeah, it's super interesting and, and kind of touching that they, like, that they did this for these people that they didn't know. They would invite them into their home to have meals and, like, things like that. So yeah, he apparently had a giant impact on their lives. Uh, many of the 649 men that he would eventually go on to personally treat said that he essentially saved their lives by treating the trauma they had both on the outside and on the inside. Oh, yeah. So then in 1938, Dr. Alma D. Morani became the first female plastic surgeon in America she didn't start practicing plastic surgery until that year, but once she did, she would go on to teach, work, and lead at Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. She was an activist, and during World War II, she raised funds to keep clinic doors open in the Philippines, Taiwan, Russia, and the Balkans. Dr. Marani was the first female member accepted into the American Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons. We will definitely do a solo episode about her. I think that's a great idea because I don't know if you've noticed, but it, we keep saying like the father of this thing because it's definitely a boys club well everything in history was until not unfair but yeah she's really really cool and her fun fact her father was like a sculptor oh and so she was like i always wanted to be a sculptor but like medically oh that's so interesting that's exactly how i feel about like plastic surgeons that's what they're doing they're like sculpting people's bodies it's crazy yeah we should definitely we'll cover her we'll put her on the list yeah um, so in the 1950s, cleft palate repair was finally achieved. Board certifications began in these areas. Facial deformities are being corrected. Yeah. In the 1970s, they're like fun things, right? Like mood rings, waterbeds, and the manipulation of SMAS, <laughs> which is superficial musculoaponeurotic system. Yeah, there you go. I think I did you a pretty did a good great job, job there. And you know what I did? I kind of closed my eyes and just went Sure, forward. yeah. So that's the framework for the longer-lasting facelift results. Mm. So 
in addition to new facelifts, the FDA was like, we probably need to like check on plastic surgery a little bit more. Seems fair. So the FDA created the general, they're correct, the general and plastic surgery devices panel that recommended breast implants be classified as class two medical devices, which increased the standards around those procedures. That's a huge move forward for general public safety and common sense everywhere. So good job. Mm-hmm. They also started doing a ton of research around skin and muscle flap methods, which expanded the ways in which plastic surgeons could help people yeah so there's like a lot of innovation happening in the 70s so interesting in the 80s there was like this big push for celebration around plastic surgery which like no judgment um and the profession of plastic surgery so information was like really readily available in leaflets and brochures Mm -hmm. delivered to people or available in the public about like plastic surgery and like what you could get and kind of normalizing it probably the biggest addition was the in the form of surgeries like liposuction. In addition to, like, more public desire, breast enhancement and implants were reclassified as a Class three device, mm-hmm. which meant that the FDA could require manufacturers to submit studies on implant safety and effectiveness and require pre-market approval. So we love that. They just keep seeing, like, there's more oversight needed. Yeah, feels like maybe you should start doing that before you put them into people, but what do I know? Correct. Then the 90s came. We were born. <laughs> and we are also, like, introduced, um, you're welcome, um, to the web, like, at easily accessible places, like, in people's homes. It is said from 1990 to 1999, about 1.2 million reconstructive procedures were performed every year. Wow. In that same time frame, 1 million cosmetic procedures were performed every year. In That's the 90s. crazy. People were like, I'm about to look good. Bye. I love it. Yeah. In um, 1990, a plastic surgeon, Dr. Murray, he actually won, like, a Nobel Prize for his work in organ and cell transplantation. This is where I want to say plastic surgery is so much more than, like, what we what you might think about. That's why I love that we covered, like, all the ways in which plastic surgery can, like, make impact. Yeah. Yeah. Then we see the FDA ban silicone gel-filled implants. Absolutely. Um, For cosmetic use. And that's in 1992 for safety concerns, duh. And their use was reserved only for reconstruction. Like, that's the only way you could use that. Mm -hmm. During this time, saline implants are the only ones widely available. At the end of the 90s, we have, like, ultrasonic liposuction, which is a new method that liquefies fat and creates an easier removal process. So shout out to that, too. Yeah, and I also saw that liposuction is still ranking in the top five cosmetic procedures um and although plastic or cosmetic surgery wasn't always as mainstream as it is today so 20 years ago it was still considered invasive expensive sometimes risky it was still sort of stigmatized and then in 2002 the food and drug administration approved botox for preventing wrinkles and then a few years later they approved hyaluronic acid fillers which at first were just used to fill in fine lines and wrinkles, but can now be used to restructure jawlines, noses, and cheeks in a semi-permanent way. So rather than cosmetic surgery in the, the strictest definition, which is a permanent change, these results can last between six months to a year, and they're less expensive and less invasive than other cosmetic surgery options. It's like cosmetic enhancements. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of surgery, it's it's an enhancement because it's not really invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, which even, even modern cosmetic surgery has gotten much, much, much less invasive. The incisions are smaller. A lot of it is laparoscopic. Um, so it's getting smaller, safer, less expensive. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, Americans received more than 7 million neurotoxin injections in 2018 and more than 2.5 million filler injections. That year alone, Americans spent $16.5 billion on cosmetic surgery, which was a record high, and 92% of those procedures were performed on people who identify as women. I will say, having benefited from both cosmetic surgery and minor procedures like Botox myself, it is my personal belief that if there is something that you don't like about yourself and you actually want to fix it, by all means, if a procedure makes it easier for you to exist in this world, something like gender affirmation surgery, do it. If it makes it easier for you and you like yourself looking that way, I say I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. But what I hate is the idea 
of a homogenous, often Eurocentric beauty standard or a singular idea of what beauty means that makes people think they need to fix something. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is driven by social media. The number of plastic surgeries performed has nearly doubled in the last decade. Um, I read this really interesting article that that will link from The New Yorker about the rise of what they call Instagram face. And if you've ever spent any time on social media, you know exactly the one we're talking about. Yes. Insta face. <laughs> You're like, mm-hmm. It's like blurred, no pores. Yeah, it's like the filtered, no very, um, not a line in sight. Yeah. Your eyebrows are high. Your eyes are, like, foxy. Your nose is, like, slim and neat. Your lips are big and poofy. Um, and I'm not saying that that's unattractive, any of those things individually on their own, but I am saying that, like, it is an unattainable beauty standard that filler, uh, filters make look like everybody looks like. Um, after researching this topic, I will say it kind of restored my faith in humanity just a little because surgeons say that although the numbers of people coming in are still steadily rising, fewer and fewer people are coming in insisting that they need to look like Kylie Jenner or some other celebrity to be comfortable in their own skin. And more people are coming in to tweak something that accentuates their own beauty. And to that, I say, absolutely. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I think there's a lot. Like, I, I also really liked this this episode, the research. Yeah. But I think, like, what we also see culturally is this strong effort to find and appreciate the beauty in yourself. Like, whether it be brands, like, reaching out to have representation from mm-hmm. all types of people in, yeah. in their, like, in their media and their, like, imaging. Like, I think that there's a lot of change happening and I agree with you. Like, I think if you want to do something to you, your own self, to make you feel better, that is your business. Oh. That is your body. That is your choice. Brought it full circle. That is nobody else's business. That's called a callback, people. <laughs> uh, period. And so um, thank you so much. That's what we know about plastic surgery. And we have a couple episodes off of this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We got some spinoffs. And we have a couple more recommendations. Oh, we do have more recommendations. Also, we got a recommendation from someone named Cheryl. If you guys are sending in recommendations, thank you. We love them. We love listener feedback. Leave us a review. Slide in those DMs. Whatever you want to do. We love to interact with you. Um, if you have a recommendation or you want to be like Lynn and Cheryl, like everyone should, just DM us on our Insta and our social meds. Or email us at malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Like and subscribe. What else? That's it. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget, malpractice makes makes perfect. perfect. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Register to vote. (laughs) 